Hey everybody, welcome to Be Better Tomorrow. I'm your host, Jason Fisher. This is a conversation with Jason Slim Blackhurst, an IT manager and servant leader, which means he doesn't lead teams by lording over them and micromanaging, but by helping them, supporting them, and getting the heck out of their way. We had a great conversation about that sort of thing, about giving feedback, and also about super chickens. You want to stick around and hear about the super chickens. With no further ado, I bring you Jason Slim Blackhurst. All right, Jason, just gave the introduction. Anxious to get into this conversation, but first, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Okay, I am Jason Blackhurst on Twitter and in real life, I'm also known as Slim. In fact, most people know me more as Slim than by Jason. I've been a software developer for about 15 years. I've been leading teams for about seven. I am a servant leader. I have been for the last seven years. I really, really enjoy uh, empowering teams and helping them grow uh, based on how they want to work. Servant leaders as an interesting way to put that. Can you tell me a little bit more what that means to you? A servant leader to me is all about getting out of the team's way. It's about uh, removing obstacles. It's about letting the team work how they want to work, work how they work best. They want to succeed. So let's work to get out of their way and uh, let them succeed. So definitely no micromanaging on your side, I'm guessing. No. <laughs> no. No, I'm a, I'm a big fan of not micromanaging. Good. People do great work. Uh, and if they don't do great work, there's a lot of ways to help them do better work. It sounds like you're saying one of the important things to do is to be able to trust your people. Do you find a lot of teams struggle with that aspect? 100%. Uh, teams often struggle to trust one another. I think in a lot of situations, unfortunately, they're set up to not trust each other. They're set up to double check each other. They're set up to... Uh, to fail slow and to, to, to let their mistakes, if they make them uh, go on unnoticed for a while. And I think that working with someone in a safe environment where you can give them feedback in, in near real time or real time preferably uh, just makes for a much better, much better environment. Yeah, but feedback is so difficult. Most of us don't ask for it. And unsolicited feedback, I've always been told, is kind of insulting. Um, unless you are in a, like a leadership position where it's kind of your job to do that. For me to walk over to a peer and say, hey, I've got some feedback for you, unless it's positive, I find that's not usually received well. So how do you find we can create an atmosphere where feedback is expected, asked for, received well, and all those kind of things? In my opinion, feedback is so much more well-received when it's small. So uh, don't wait to go over and, hey, do you have a minute? Let me give you some feedback on that thing. If you can do it in the moment, if you can do it while that thing is happening, that's so much more powerful. And that's not always going to be the case. You, know, you don't want to give someone negative feedback, even if it's small, if you're in a meeting of a bunch of execs. You, you don't want to do that in front of their boss. You don't want to do that in front of your boss. But if you can catch them on the way out of the meeting, if you can uh, be sitting, them, sitting there with them when they're making that decision or when they're making that mistake, and you can just ask them about that, hey, what's, what's your thinking here? Why are you, you, know, why are you going down this road? Uh, can you explain what you're, what you're working with here? And a lot of times you can walk them into a better decision without giving that feedback to them, without saying, I think you're going down the wrong route. You can expose them to a, a better route and, and you can make that decision together. You make a really good point. Maybe they know something we don't and they did the thing we'd give them feedback on for a reason that's actually a really good reason. Absolutely. Unless, unless we bother to hear that first, we, we won't find that out. Yeah, 100%. Now you said when we talked that a lot of your work is based on, um, uh, the, I guess it's Rework is where the website is, Rework with Google, or Rework.withgoogle.com. Uh, Project Aristotle, I think is also what it's called, right? 
Am yeah. I remembering that project, correctly? That's right. Project Aristotle, kind of the base of that regarding work, rework at uh, Google. Actually, part of the talk that I give, I have a presentation that I give on that, on that Project Aristotle. And in that, there's a, a related component to just that, where if you get into a situation where the feedback and the, the speaking up is not safe, then you're not going to get it. And that's going to go the wrong way. An example of that from one of my previous roles, I was working on a team and a, a coworker of mine and me, we would banter back and forth a lot about each other's code. And sometimes we would be not so nice in that we would, you know, kind of downplay each other's effectiveness and, and, uh, and how we're writing junk code. And what we didn't realize at the time, and I've since come to realize is that other people on the team would hear that and then they would not speak up if they thought maybe we were going in the wrong direction. And I, I know for a fact that in at least one of those instances, we took a wrong road. We, we made a decision early on that could have been different. person that I'm, I'm thinking of at the moment, he knew that that was the wrong road and he didn't say anything because he thought we would downplay that idea. He thought we would you know, make fun of him for suggesting something. He thought he was, he was wrong. He didn't feel safe in making that suggestion. And because of that environment that he was in, he didn't save us that time. He didn't make our stuff better because of that. And so it started, I'm assuming, was friendly banter between you and somebody you were close to. Yeah. Yeah, you weren't really insulting each other, but, but that kind of friendly conversation in the wrong context can make other people shy, especially if they're not used to that. Like, I speak sarcasm fluently. Usually with my friends, if we're not insulting each other, somebody's actually mad about something. But other people who don't come from that kind of background, they can be made uncomfortable and, and don't feel safe to do that. Something for all of us to consider, especially... I find in the geek world and in, in, in IT where we both work, there's a little bit more of that, I feel like. Absolutely. And that was exactly the case where we were, we were bantering back and forth enough and publicly enough that it just made for an unsafe environment. I mean, not really unsafe. We, we wouldn't have taken that banter to anyone else if they weren't comfortable with it. But that didn't prevent that person from being afraid of it. Perception is reality. While you say it wasn't really an unsafe environment, as long as that person was perceiving it as unsafe, it was unsafe to them to some degree, and it prevented them from speaking up when they really needed to. And our team was less efficient because of it. Our team was less powerful because of it. Right. Um, eventually, we corrected it, and, and uh, we wanted to be a great team. Mm -hmm. but while that was happening, uh, unbeknownst to us, yeah, we were hurting our own team. So how do you work to build that safety because I feel like trust is kind of the foundation of everything else we're talking about. So how do you work to build that safe environment for folks as you come into a new leadership role or a new team or maybe a new team gets brought together inside your organization? So that's another thing they talk about in uh, the project Aristotle and the outcome of that, the, that rework website is a wealth of, of knowledge on that uh, subject and many others that, that came out of project Aristotle. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes with a link so people can go find it afterwards. Awesome. So one of the things that they, they talk about in that is model curiosity. So that is asking the question. Chances are, if you have a question about something and no one else is asking it, they probably have that question too. So go ahead and ask it. Go ahead and learn. Try to, try to expose more of the project or more of the problem so that other people can be thinking about it. It's unlikely that you're the only person with that question. Another one is frame it as a learning environment. You know, if you're solving a problem, there's something unique about that problem. Uh, but also you're not the first person to solve it. So you want to try to find better ways to solve it. And a lot of times that's through conversation. That's through talking with your coworkers and finding out what input they have, getting everyone working on that project or that problem, sorry, 
is, is going to be more efficient. It's going to be more powerful and it's going to make everyone feel safe because together as a team, you're admitting your ignorance around approaching this problem. The first thing you said really strikes a chord with me. I'm definitely the kind of person whose pride gets in their way when it comes to things that I sh- think I should know. What broke me of that is being a consultant. I walk into environments where you know, there's acronyms and initials flying all over the place. I could pretend that I know what they're talking about. Usually the first thing I do is start to create a glossary of the terms and the initials and everything that they stand for. And, the, and what I find is everybody says, oh, I didn't know half of these and I wish I would have. I wish I had this. So if you're a consultant out there, it's an easy win. Just create a glossary for people who, for their own organizations, organizations phrases, you'll win a, win a lot of points. Yeah, I have a lot of experience in federal government. And I remember in one of the projects that I was starting on, they gave me that glossary that they had already prepared, but it was a binder, a <laughs> binder of acronyms. It was ridiculous. That's not terribly helpful, but as leaders, we do have to model the behaviors that we want to see. Um, not just as people in positional leaders, not just the managers with the titles, but if you want to be a leader on your team, you model that model the type of behavior that you want to see. One of the things that I use a lot, if you ever watch the TV show Bones, the main character played by Emily Deschanel, she's super, super smart, but very socially inept. And so early in the show, people would make phrases or the innuendo or something, and she would just look at them and go, I don't know what that means, very casually, because she understood the only way to, to overcome her ignorance was to ask the question. And so I've just adopted that. I try to you know, put on her face and go, uh, I don't know what that means. And people, oh, and like three other people usually be nodding along at that point everyone's walking in ignorance and only the wise get away from it. That's kind of a good way to go about modeling that behavior, not feeling bad about it in the process. Yeah. You have to ask the questions. So what are the other big findings from, from project Aristotle that you've talked about and used in some of your work? So psychological safety is what they found to be the, the by far the, the largest impact on team. If you have a psychologically safe environment, your team will do better, just hands down better. The other two that are, are big impacts that I talk about in my presentation is uh, structure and clarity and dependability. So dependability is just what it sounds like. You know, are you, are you uh, following up with what you're promising to do? Are you a reliable and dependable person? Uh, structure and clarity is a little bit more uh, vague, a little bit more, you know, a, a larger concept. And that's everything from, do you know who it is that you ask for vacation to who's asking for the thing that, that you're responsible for contributing to the, to the product. Who's going to benefit from it? How will they benefit from it? Kind of getting to the why uh, is, a, is a big part of that. Who's, who's accountable for the decision? Who's responsible for the decision? Knowing the structure and clarity of the organization and how everybody interacts, what, what they're responsible for is so important in the way you work. And you will work so much better when those things are clear. Uh, one, one example of that is I was working in an environment where the, the QA team was measured and valued based off of how many bugs they found. Okay, that seems like a decent idea on the face of it. Right, <laughs> it does on the face of it. And, and the QA team by that metric was amazing. Part of the way they became amazing was that they would go into obscure browsers and do things like, you know, the, the classic kind of QA joke of, of a QA walks into a bar and orders one beer, orders zero beers, orders 999 beers, orders Z beers, orders exclamation point beers, putting in edge cases that were never going to happen in a real life scenario. And those things would be bugs. And the way that, the way that team was set up to operate was once one of those bugs were found, 
they immediately went into the queue for the development team to address. So that, that became a huge waste of time, just going back to the QA team and saying, how do you recreate this bug? Now, once we've got it recreated, is this really worth fixing? How many of these edge cases can even exist? And in that situation, the, the team was structured such that it was going to get in its own way. Is it good to great the phrase, the system you have is perfectly designed to give you the outcome that you're getting right now and the outcome of a team not working together? You have to look at the structure to some degree and go, okay, what do we have designed here that's, that's not working quite the way we wanted it to or expected it to? Do you find with the structure piece, there's a correlation between size of company? I guess a smaller company better at some of those things or a larger company better at some of those things? Hmm. That's a good question. So in my experience, the structure of a small company is much more nebulous. You're, you're wearing a lot more hats when you're working in a small company. I think it's necessarily that the structure is more defined, but you feel more comfortable in my experience dealing with it, working with in, inside of those boundaries and, and the boundaries are fewer. But in a large company, I feel like the boundaries are more, a much more thick line making those boundaries and the, and the structure reporting and who, who does what but it's, it's much less well-known who's doing what. Yeah, in, in both of those cases, it seems like the larger the company, the, the harder it's going to be to, to be successful. That was kind of my instinct on it, that a larger company has so many, so many departments in charge of creating structure. Like they'll have a, a huge HR department that makes sure the org chart is defined to the nth degree. You know exactly where you need to go or the website you need to go to to find out who to report your time off to, the sort of things you're talking about. But at the same time, if the structure of your company is designed in a certain way, changing it in a large organization, I think is a much more difficult thing. You know, some startups fly by the seat of their pants to some degree and they can change things quickly because there's nobody to really ask. You just do it differently. And if that works, you keep doing it that way. And it becomes you know, culturally, uh, culturally accepted. So that was just my first instinct on it. And some of the complexity behind a large company. Do you, do you know Justin Searles? The name sounds familiar. So he's the founder of Testable. Uh, I, I know him mainly from Twitter. He's, you know, he's a prolific Twitter writer. Uh, he's got a bunch of videos on uh, test-driven development that are both uh, entertaining and informative, very, very informative. And he had a tweet that I'm going to butcher, but essentially the idea behind it was, if you're looking to make a policy, try to make sure that you're not just avoiding one really hard conversation with one person. And, and I've found that, that once you start making policies like that, that are really just trying to avoid one conversation with one person, it adds to the complexity of your organization and it adds to the structure and, and, and reduces clarity and very unnecessarily. And oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, if you just had an environment where you could go talk to that person and address the problem, you would need the policy, you would need to blast it out on Slack and say, hey, everybody, you know, sign the new policy because now, you know, you can only spend $15 when you go out to lunch. Right, because some schmo spent $60 one day. And like, instead of just talking to him, oh gosh, I have this overwhelming sense of injustice since I was a child. And so I, the two few times I've fallen into that where, hey, there's a new rule now. Well, okay, we know exactly who you're talking about. We know where the problem is. None of the rest of us are having this problem. Just talk to them and leave me alone. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to look him up because that sounds like he, can, he might have some pretty interesting stuff. So he's a structure, reliability and dependability. Talk to me about reliability. So uh, reliability and dependability, th those are you know, kind of lumped in uh, together. In my experience, this was back in federal government days. There were two folks that I worked with in separate 
separate tenures at the same federal government agency. One of them was earlier in my tenure and it was a guy that was retiring. He was retiring in about a year, year and a half. And he counted down the days. And during his countdown, he really didn't do anything. Uh, but he'd, he'd been there so long that it would have been way more effort, just a significant amount of effort to, to get him to change his ways or to fire him or to penalize him in any way because it would have been just a bureaucratic nightmare. Fast forward about eight years in the same environment. I was working with a gentleman that he was fresh out of college and he was really looking for what he could do to, to put lines on his progress report, but not really do any work. You know, creative ways to, to look like a software developer, but not really have to develop any software. And, and in my experience, in, in both of those environments, you, you, you kind of have to start battling the idea that you know, you're going to be so much more productive when you're there that you can stand to not be there as much. That starts to get a little bit toxic where you're, you're thinking, you know, I, I can get there. I can get there now. I can skip some part of my morning. I can skip some part of my lunch. I can, you know, I cannot have dessert today and, and, you know, make my lunch a half an hour instead of, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. But you know what? I'm going to get there and I'm going to do so much more than this other person does throughout the whole day. You know, I can stand to stay away for 15 or 20 or 30 more minutes. And when everybody's looking at that and comparing themselves to the productivity of this person that's, you know, just slacking, it becomes a, a downhill journey. It's, it's you're going to regress quicker. Uh, your team is going to be less efficient. And those things are really easy to address gently early. But once they get bad, it's, it's much harder to address. It is because everyone's upset using more phrases like always and never without having data. And I always feel bad if you have to actually track data on somebody, you probably are too late to have the conversation already. Because if there's, if there's enough, enough data to gather, the situation is probably bigger than you want it to be when you have the conversation. I'm trying to resist making any kind of federal government worker joke since you worked there for some time. <laughs> but that's, no, it's okay. They're, I think they're mostly true. <laughs> That's unfortunate. I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. I learned a, a great deal. Uh, I worked with some really great teams, uh, but there was definitely thick layers of bureaucracy and nonsense that went, that went along with it. And that's probably led to some of your passion around this, especially around the structure issue, having dealt with maybe the most structured organization on the face of the planet. Like you said, they already had a binder that was a glossary of what's going on. Then there's probably a lot more headache and overhead and red tape in, in the federal government than anywhere else. And so understanding how to be more effective in what you do drives you to study these things that you're passionate about now and are making a difference in, in many teams, not only your own, but where you're doing your speaking, um, other teams that you're not really involved in. Have you ever had somebody come back up to you at this point and say, hey, I heard your talk last year. And so I took some of these things hard or read up on something. Any success stories that you've heard anything about? Yeah, some, some really awesome success stories. Uh, a woman reached out to me, and it's probably been a year ago now, and she was able to take a presentation that I'd given at Momentum, the dev conference in Cincinnati. And she had been able to take that back to her team, and she, she looked at the rework.withgoogle site, learned a bunch from there, pulled out some stuff from my talk, and asked me a few questions afterwards about some of my experiences. And she would, you know, we talked, uh, we talked on the phone for probably... I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes about some of the things that she had done with her team. One of the things that, that she told me about that was really, really awesome was she established with her teams the expectations of everyone as it relates to everyone else. So she sat everyone down in a room that was on her team 
and she would say, you know, this role, scrum master, what does everyone expect from the scrum master? And you'd, you'd write down in a post-it note and you'd put it in the scrum master section. And then you would talk about developer. You know, what does everybody expect from a developer? What are their roles? What are their responsibilities? To, uh, QA, what's the responsibilities and expectations of QA? Tech lead, what's roles and expect expectations, responsibilities? And then they would talk about each role from both, the, you know, the, the scrum master would be able to say, this is what I thought was in my purview and this is what I, I thought was outside. And they would have discussion of, of, is this a tech lead responsibility or is this a scrum master? Is this QA or is this a developer? Who's responsible for these different aspects of, of that role? And then once they all got agreement, they would write that down. And then when a new person came on board, they would give them that list. Here's what everybody on our team is responsible for. And that adds so much clarity around what you're going to be doing, what you're going to expect it, expected doing. It makes that so nice. And then when you have a disagreement or when you have something, uh, somebody comes on board and they're like, I, you know, I'm not used to doing this. Can we discuss this? Then you can go right back into that meeting and you have a place to start from. You know what everybody was responsible for before this new thing came on. So what can we trade out? What can we get them responsible for and, and take something off of their plate? That way everybody can be productive and grow and move fast and safe. It's just a really powerful way to, to kind of organize around roles and responsibilities and make everyone clear about what, what's going on. I was really impressed by that. Yeah, I think I'm going to, no, I'm, I am going to steal that at some point if I ever have the opportunity to do it coming to a new team. It, it reminds me, like I was old enough to do BA work when it was still nebulous as to what a BA's responsibilities were. In every interview, it was, and what does being a BA mean to you? Or what do you think the, the roles and responsibilities of a BA are? Which I always reference the seat in office space. And he talks about taking the requirements from the customers to the developers. Go look it up if you haven't seen it. Setting those standards, it goes back, kind of back to the communication and, and trust place. If we're not explicitly clear about what our expectations are, there's a very good chance they're not going to be met. Whether that's in a relationship, whether that's at work, whether that's any other situation between two human beings or more, more than two human beings. If we have expectations that aren't expressed explicitly, other people can't read our minds. And so there will be disappointment or there'll be a struggle because well, I thought that was your job to do. And the, the other person, well, I thought that was your job to do. Well, let's, that's a great idea. Just new team or even an old team. Let's sit down and make sure we're clear on this. So we're all doing what we expect is expected of us and make sure we all know what is expected of us by everybody. I'm, I'm sure that helped the team perform so much better, so much smoother. So you do talks about, about this sort of thing, safety, teamwork, effectiveness. Where are you speaking next? I don't know. I don't think I have any, anything booked uh, coming up soon. Aha, con planners out there. His LinkedIn will be in the show notes. Go grab him now while he's available before everyone else goes and gets in. What was one of the other big takeaways from maybe Project Aristotle or even in your own work and understanding these processes that, that kind of smacked you in the face of, how did I not see this before? Honestly, reading through that research was, was so enlightening and not just on the team that I was on currently, but past teams. A lot of the examples that I give in that presentation are teams that I was on when I was first starting my career. And I could see the problems and I could see the impact of those problems, but I had no idea what the cause of it was. I had no idea how large the impact would be. And in some of those cases, the problem was addressed and I just didn't know what changed or why the team got better or, or why the team in some cases got worse. But reading through that study, I was really able to frame 
a lot of the things that I'd seen through that lens. And it was, it was so enlightening just to be able to look at those problems and know that anyone could have addressed them. Those weren't problems that required, you know, a boss, a manager to address. In a lot of those cases, you can just have a really fast, in some cases, challenging conversation, but you can have a small conversation and, and address some of those things. And in some cases, how I, I was part of the problem in some of those, the, the instance where, you know, my buddy and I would make fun of each other. I was the problem and I, I just didn't realize it. I didn't see it. And knowing those things, uh, I think it just, it makes me a better leader. It makes me a better team player. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to strive to, to not only not be in that situation again, where I'm making a team worse, but try to address others that may be contributing to the, the bad side of the team and, and get them to improve together with, with me. Okay. So as we're closing up here, what are some other resources people go look at? We talked about rework. Do you have any other good resources for people looking to improve their team effectiveness or understand some of these topics? Yes, there are two, there are two really great TED talks that are called out under psychological safety on that rework site. One is Amy Edmondson talking about psychological safety. It's a fantastic talk about how, you know, no one comes into work wanting to look ignorant. No one uh, wants to come into work and look bad. So if they are afraid that they're going to, then they tend to, to, they tend to, you know, minimize themselves. And that's, that's exactly the environment you don't want. You want people to be comfortable speaking about the ignorance, people to uh, feel safe making mistakes. And anyone can affect that environment for the positive. Another great TED Talk that's called out on psychological safety on that rework site is Margaret Heffernan, her talk on super chickens. It's a study where super chickens are the most productive egg-laying chicken in a, in a group of chickens. So they are the super chicken. And in this study, they took the super chicken of multiple groups and they put them together and they, they kept doing that a, a few rounds and, and they created a group of super chickens. And what she found was as they did that, they actually reduced the efficiency of those chickens. Those chickens laid less eggs. Those chickens spent more time sort of ranking themselves and, and establishing uh, dominance than they did laying chicken. They, they kind of felt uh, less safe because of that. Literally, pecking each other to death. And I see that occasionally in organizations where you are, or you are given a survey or you're given uh, the ability to rank or to evaluate your coworkers on their knowledge around some certain set of subjects. And I feel like when you do that, you're not modeling safety any longer. People are worried about their knowledge and how it's portrayed around a certain subject. So if they have some ignorance, around that, which is natural and is going to happen in every environment, they're going to work to hide that ignorance and work around it instead of addressing it and learning and growing and becoming a better, better developer, a better person because of it. I feel like in those environments, you're setting yourself up for, for a slow failure, just, just pitting your employees against each other. I, I, think, that's, I think that's one, uh, one environment that's easy to spot and easy to correct. Uh, that I think is kind of uh, super enlightening from that TED Talk. So yeah, Margaret Heffernan and Amy Edmondson both have great TED Talks on uh, psychological safety. Awesome. And then just as a way to close out, I'd like to ask everyone who's on, who's on here, what are you doing today to be better tomorrow? I'm learning. I am, I am listening to podcasts like this one. I am 
reading books on uh, management and uh, emotional uh, emotional IQ, EQ, uh, and, and branching out into other things like economics, uh, just trying to learn as much as I can. Well, this has been Jason Slim Blackhurst on the Be Better Tomorrow podcast. Thank you all for listening. Hang on to hear more about our show, and we will talk to you soon. Hey, everybody. This is Jason again from Be Better Tomorrow. Be Better Tomorrow is released under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License. The music you're hearing right now is Kevin McLeod of Income Tech, also released under Creative Commons Licensing. You just show in whatever means you desire, as long as you give me credit, is basically what that boils down to. You can follow us at BeBetterTomorrow.com. You can find all of our social media links there. Go ahead out there and sign up for our newsletter to get all the best tips on how to be better tomorrow, along with my 50 best public speaking tips. If you missed my show last month on public speaking, you missed something special. Hope for that. I hope you'll do something today to be better tomorrow, and I hope to hear from you next month.